Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ventures, and welcome to episode 52, which when I started this a year ago, I was not anticipating releasing an episode every week, but I just really enjoyed it, and the, the guests have been absolutely amazing. So thanks to those of you who have been following along. There's been certainly no lack of conversation about different aspects of building a company, health tech, med tech, Web 3.0. And in fact, today's conversation with Joni Kinwell Moore is about Web3. And as you probably hopefully picked up on from previous guests, I and many others are very interested in how Web3 is going to benefit humanity outside of just NFT, cat, meme, uh, cryptocurrency-ism. Um, yes, the crypto casino in and of itself is fascinating, but what's more interesting is what are the underlying technologies going to do to actually benefit our world? So in today's conversation, Joni and I actually dive into the world of agriculture and the world of, of buying commodities, of buying ingredients. She runs a company called snacktivistfoods.com and she's trying to source food that is good for us and how she finds farmers to get her supplies from and that, how that process works we dive into what that looks like today, what that could look like in the world, the future world of Web3, where we can scale trust. And, and we talk specifically about why would blockchains be helpful in supply chain for agri agriculture? Um, what kind of applications would be necessary for people like Joni, who are entrepreneurs building CPG companies to be successful? And so I'm excited to share this conversation with you about all those things. So if you're listening, you can also watch by visiting wclittle.com and there you'll see more extensive show notes to the things that we talk about today. And if you're watching, you can also listen anywhere that you get your podcasts. You can just search for ventures. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Joni Kidwell Moore. All right, Joni, welcome back. It's great to be back. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited to continue our conversation. So for those who may have missed our previous conversation just a couple episodes ago, would you mind just sort of recapping who you are, uh, sure. what, you, what you're up to, uh, sort of recap the last, the last episode there? Yeah, no problem. So my name is Joni and I'm founder of a company called Snacktivist Inc. And we're a company that's dedicated to taking um, food and gen basic grain-based foods and elevating them to new levels of like function and health and sustainability and ultimately climate impact. So yeah, basically pancake mix will never be just pancake mix again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the last episode, we, we spent some good time talking the, the balance between talking about the science of yes. microbiome in our, in our bodies, in our soils, uh, and we also talked about just the life of an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and so we yeah, might dive into a little bit of that today. But today, I think I'd, I'd love to focus a little bit more on um, uh, how you're thinking about Web 3.0 as it relates to your world. Sure. Maybe the first question is that broad. Like, where would you like yeah. to start? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a that's a huge question. And anytime you're talking about Web 3.0, I think for one, most people are like, "Uh oh, Google that real quick," because what is that? Mm. And you know, for me, and I'm not a tech person. Full disclosure, I always say I know just enough about tech to be dangerous because. Mm -hmm. 
I'm purely user focused. I am not a programmer. I'm not a designer. I don't even know how to code, full disclosure. Um, I'm almost 50. We didn't learn that stuff in high school. So, um, you know, so basically the way I'm looking at it as a food company founder is that where the future in my mind is going is to decentralization. I feel like the last century or two was very centralized focused and that when you think about how all of our information has been stored and all of our structuring of corporations, businesses, institutions, everything, it's been very top-down, very centralized. Web 3.0 by nature is decentralized. And that's why I feel like as we transition into new systems, um, what, what Snacktivist is doing is really kind of a disruption of some of the most highly centralized, vertically integrated um, industries in the world. we're going to have to leverage the power of decentralized data platforms to really do what we're doing well. And that's the way I understand it. And that's the where where I'm going intellectually when I talk about this subject. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I mean, my general take on Web3 is regarding explaining what it is. So very briefly, Web1 was essentially, hey, let's put all this stuff up on this content up on this connected internet thing mm-hmm. and maybe we buy some stuff but it's mostly a sharing inf- information uh sure. web two was hey we can actually communicate with each other and have these sort of elaborate networks mm-hmm. and share content um share photos of cats and our food and our <laughs> yeah <laughs> right and a Buy few things. That's right. And a few companies sort of took that and ran with it and yeah. lots of centralization in web two and the algorithms yeah. that are messing with our heads, etc. And no that. privacy, yeah. no data privacy at all. Right. Right. So now web three is actually back to what was the utopian vision originally with the people who were starting the internet, which is open mm-hmm. protocols, decentralized things, data mm-hmm. is sort of everywhere. Um but yeah, it's the Web3 movement is really upping um, privacy. It's really yeah. upping scaling trust to mathematics and machines mm-hmm. that, are, that are out there mm-hmm. and, um, and allowing a new type of applications to be built mm-hmm. that, that rely on the foundation essentially of those two things. So sure. it, in, in your world, well, maybe maybe tell the audience a little bit more about your world. Like you, you come from a medical background. You're you've been deep into to ag and, and restorative ag, and or tell us how, how you how you describe that. Well, it, it has been an interesting journey because I grew up in rural Oregon, so definitely grew up with a ag connection. Like my own family had a small little farm, nothing huge, but I would spend my summers working and living with my aunt and uncle you know, driving large farm machinery. And I think I, it just really gave me a, a deeper feel into what makes agriculture tick. And, but was always really passionate about science. So when I left and pursued my original careers, it was all science focused. And I um, was very, became very passionate about um, a field that most people don't really know about. It's called ethnopharmacology and ethnobotany. And that is really the root of like how humans use plants for both food and medicine, and really takes a deeper dive into the chemistry side of plants and how plants interact with our bodies. And so I've applied that to um, food and health and healing and how food and medicine are tied together. Um, I, when I was in my thirties, I decided to become an RN. 
Um, I was really wanting a human connection and kind of a bedside um, connection. And, and really what motivated me to do that was my husband and I were in Cambodia and he was volunteering at uh, Jaya Varman, the seventh hospital in Siem Reap. And it was like a bunch of little kids that had gotten their legs blown off and like horrible stuff. And I, I felt powerless because we showed up as volunteers and they were like, oh, well, you're a scientist. I don't know what you can really do to help. And, um, and Roy was a seasoned RN. So they pulled, they were like, sweet, you could totally volunteer. And I kind of had a little bit of a case of feeling left out. I wanted to have that skill set where I would be valuable at the bedside. And if somebody was hurt or needing something um, medical, I could actually hands-on help. And I had done pre-med um, originally, like I had a, like that was one of my undergraduate degrees. So it was kind of an easy jump into nursing because I already had all the core curriculum. So um, yeah. And so after years of, of nursing, nursing, again, healthcare is very centralized. It's doesn't leave a ton of room for innovation, especially at the nursing level. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, nurses are kind of dissuaded from being too innovative. It's not, there's not a culture that coaxes that out of the nursing workforce in most institutions. And so my entrepreneurial spirit was super squished (laughs) as a nurse. I couldn't handle it. And I think that's what just made me go, you know what, I need to go into private enterprise um, I'd spent a lot of time working for nonprofits as well. So I was a little frustrated with how nonprofits could have an amazing idea and they could make impact, but sometimes there was a little bit of a disconnect between real world application and, um, kind of more of the utopian side of the nonprofit world. And then at the end of the day, just realizing that the root of our health, it starts with what's on our plate and seeing that we needed to completely reinvent our grain-based staples so that they're no longer toxic and associated with diabetes and metabolic syndrome and all the, you know, half the population being on proton pump inhibitors for acid reflux and right. all the things that for, to me really stem from just a broken food system. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of a, you know, there's a lot of information there, but it's pretty hard to explain my background without going through it. Yeah, no, that's helpful. That's helpful. So how do you, so how do you see web three helping your, that world in, in supply chains or yeah. of it? How, how, how are you thinking about it? Well, you know, as somebody who was middle-aged and took a huge career shift into a new industry, um, you know, I kind of came in a little bit naive, like definitely naive mm-hmm. and, you know, started reaching out to supply chains and co-packers and this whole world and realized it was so fragmented. And one of the reasons it was fragmented was a, it lacked a connected platform and B there was a lot of concerns about privacy. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons that they don't communicate and they're unwilling to be in a connected um, platform is that the lack of privacy. And I think that a lot of that stems from a just culture in general, it's a competitive landscape, but B, you know, how could you put um, information that could help players that and in this whole economy collaborate without risking um, breach of privacy? Like they could still have, um, control over their own data. Does that make sense? So if you're, if you're a supplier like me and you're a brand like me, and you're wanting to track like KPIs that are based on ingredients usage, one of our major risks to that is that we could be potentially disclosing proprietary information about our trade secrets. Mm. Right. So when you, that to me is like a really huge use case for blockchain, because there is that privacy element where you could actually start 
you know, creating data and hashing, I guess is what it's called. And you're not going to be putting it out there to where somebody could then, you know, figure out what your trade secrets are if you're trying to create measurable data sets based on your ingredients usage. <laughs> and if you're trying to do that for, you know, if you're like for us, we're a B Corp. So a lot of our reportable data that we're trying to build out has to do with like how many pounds of certain ingredients we're using and what the potential, um, you know, end, end impact is on say carbon economy or soil improvement or, um, and, you know, economic incentivization of small farmers. And when I started talking to people, they, they were like, are you crazy? Like, if you put that information out, you're risking your own proprietary data and your trade secrets are then compromised. Mm. So mm. that's what led me to blockchain originally. Huh. So, okay. So just to set context, maybe a little, a little uh, more deeply, the way it works right now is that if you need certain ingredients, right, mm -hmm. you need to order things. You're, mm -hmm. where, how are you buying them? And how is, how does that information? Yeah. How does that information flow happen? Well, right now it's all done in a style that I call like um, bourbon and Rolodex. It's like literally phone calls and coffee. And that's great because it's personal relationships and it's relationship driven, but it's very old school. It's mm -hmm. like, it's not, I mean, they're, they're, it's getting better, but even still, even in the most sophisticated systems, it's very siloed. Um, one of the things, reasons why is because larger companies don't disclose their supply chain. They actually, they actually consider their supply chain to be proprietary information. Mm. So for instance, like we had a co-packer that we were working with for a while, wasn't quite the right fit. We had some um, ingredients in stock that we had, that they had purchased on our behalf. And this was a big learning experience for me because I had vetted it and told them exactly what ingredients that needed to be and who it needed to be sourced from. But they refused to release the ingredients to us in the original packaging and insisted on rebagging it in a generic packaging that would not disclose brand, lot, origin, anything. Whoa. And she said, and she provided her contract and said, that's a breach of our proprietary information about supply chains. And so to me, that was a final straw. I was like, okay, huh. we cannot be doing business like this. I understand that there may be a you know some sort of reason you don't want to share your supply chain with someone who could potentially be a competitor you know fair enough so how could we have a transparent information system that you know for us we took on this product and now we don't have a transparent supply chain log if there was a recall on that product how is that even legit or legal? We really had to have a moral. Luckily, it was very small amount of. It was a teeny quantity, so it wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. Had it been a truckload, it would have been a problem. I would have not. I would have refused to take it. Um, you know, and so that to me was a big learning experience a while back that really educated me to the potential safety risks associated with that kind of siloed information system yeah. and, um, and made me realize that we'll never get anywhere as far as like harnessing agriculture and harnessing food as, you know, something that can help mitigate climate change and have measurable impact on carbon sequestration if we can't have collected, um, collective data platforms, right? And so that's to me where Web3 could be huge um, because you could have an, a community ledger 
that is still private where people aren't going to feel like they're violated and breached where we could collectively measure impact without breaching people's privacy. So, okay. So say more about that. Say more about measure impact. Yeah. Cause there's a lot, there's a lot in my head, uh, questions that I have about moving from the, the way that you do it now, the relationship driven, yeah. what'd you say? Handshakes and bourbon or something? Well, I always call it bourbon and Rolodex. It's bourbon like and Rolodex. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, and it's, it, there's something very enduring about that. I actually don't ever want that to completely go away to be yeah. completely transparent. Cause that's like the essence of like, you go out for drinks and you make, you get to know your, your partners and your, your suppliers and you become friends with them. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Cause we have to have that. Right. But how we get from point A to point B um, it's a degree of sophistication that I don't have from a technical standpoint, because I'm not a, I'm not a programmer. I don't understand blockchain that deeply, but when I do hear people talk about blockchain who do, that's where I see that there's hope for that. So, okay. So then help me understand the, the problem. The problem is you're one, not able to get ingredients that you need mm-hmm. Two even if you get them, you don't actually know where they come from. There's because you're, there's a proprietary chain or like how yeah. do you kind of set up the, the, the problem. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. That's a, yeah, that's a really good point. So like for us, we have an aggregated supply chain. So we, we have ingredients that we always, that we try to prioritize always farmer direct sourcing. So we know, but we're a small company and we use a lot of different ingredients. So we've prioritized the hierarchy of like which ingredient is going to be farmer connected. So like we started with one, Mm. now we're working on two more because you couldn't do it. Like you could, if you had a ton of capital and a big team, but being small and lean and scrappy, there was no way it wasn't, it wasn't feasible. And so we've, our approach was that we, you know, do one at a time. So let's look at tapioca, for instance, um, tapioca, we don't use a ton, ton of it, but it is something that we use to help bring our, our blends together and make them see a little, seem a little bit more like what people recognize is like, you know, what a pancake should be like. Right. And it comes from mostly the Philippines or Thailand. It, it's a, it's a tropical, um, one. And so we buy it from large companies, um, that are very highly centralized. These are like multinational billion dollar companies. We're working on eventually having a farmer direct supply chain there, but we just don't have it yet. And it's far away. So it's going to be further down the road for us. Mm -hmm. Um, You cannot tell um, like you cannot, you, and they're better about traceability than other smaller entities are because they have to be, and they have the technology and then they have the tech enablement to, to go there. But like, for instance, even smaller ones, let's, let's take it even a little bit closer. Um, you know, like some, there are some regional millers that are very well known and they're, they're fabulous companies, but we would buy when we were first getting started, um, sorghum flour from them. And then you'd get the sorghum flour. It would have a lot number and expiration. And that would be as much as you could get. Well, we were buying like 50 pounds at a time. because This was like early on. And one batch would perform and taste a totally different way than the next batch. So we were having variability that almost made it behave like a separate ingredient. Mm. And when I would call the company up, I would say, is there any way that you guys can give us traceable information to where I can try to tease out 
if this is a regional thing, like maybe we only want sorghum from Oklahoma because when it's from Texas, it doesn't taste as good. Or is it a seasonal thing? Or is it a harvest thing? Is it a varietal thing? Are they planting two different types and one's great and one's terrible? And no one would give us that data. They said it's mm. proprietary. We can't tell you that. I'm like, well, how can I make a high quality product if you're not willing to share with me the information that's going to help me make a high quality product? Nope, you can't. We cannot tell you that. That's proprietary information. So, mm. yeah. yeah okay. And it's in their system. You can't. It's like all in a private siloed system. And unless you can find somebody who's willing to share with you, you know, because you've had you're in their Rolodex and you've gone out for drinks with them or something. And now you're a friend. Um, there's no way you'll ever get that information. Okay. So if we were to put on our web three product hats, how mm -hmm. do we design and architect a system, uh, a layer one, layer two, layer three, mm -hmm. uh, that still enables the Rolodex and bourbon, mm -hmm. but brings the level of transparency and data surfacing that is mm -hmm. required to solve this problem space that you describe. Do you have thoughts on that? Even if you just wave a magic wand, I wish yeah. you could listen to this. Because we have plenty yeah. of people that can go the technical and solve it yeah. technically, but I think the, the bigger issue might be the product. Yeah. So like for me, and I've actually written out a pitch deck that's detail about what I want, you mm. know, as a, yeah, I like, I've spent a lot of time working on the user side of it, but I would want it to mimic what we love about some, some social networks like LinkedIn, where you're, you know, you've got your friends, you've got people you know personally, you've got people you don't know personally. You, there's some sort of community feel in a digital fashion. And if you know them in person, even better but that it would have a web three kind of back um, bone to it to where when I would say, for instance, Snacktivist, me, I'm like, hey, I'm going to buy a truckload of sorghum from a farmer's co-op in, let's just say Texas again, because Texas is a big state. Um, because I would create that interaction through our social platform. Like I still have a personal connection there, but if it were like blockchain enabled, and it could, that transaction could then pull through data that would then be true and authentic and uncorruptible, um, that somehow I might be able to access if there was a problem with quality, that somehow I might be able to trace it down to a pinpoint where then even through relationships, then I approach the buyer and I'm like, Hey, look, we have a problem with quality or we don't like this. We're trying to improve quality. Um, that without compromising their private supply chain data, that I could mine the data I need to improve our product. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's a concept in, in, in the blockchain world called a zero knowledge proof, where you can mm. essentially ask a question of a data set that you don't need specific access to, but you can get right. yes or no back. It's like a null hypothesis kind of thing, right? Where it's like, it's a yes or no question always, right? I've tried to understand this well, and this is where you guys can help me. It's, it's like, and then there's the work proofed and then the, 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 the work versus work the, and proof of stake. Yeah. Proof yeah. of stake and proof of work. And that's where I'm like, I just gloss over. I'm like, <laughs> okay, you guys lost me. I don't get it. <laughs> so maybe you can, you can uh, help me. There. Those, so those two are in particular, and there's lots of proof of X. They're, they're ways of essentially making sure 
that there's authenticity for all the different transactions mm-hmm. that are happening, right? You, pu- you, you, you pack a bunch of transactions into a block mm-hmm. and then blocks undergo a series of mathematics and things. They need to be, they need to be proven that they're one secure, that it's the, as each block gets chained together, mm-hmm. that you're, you, that, that it's trustworthy, that there's enough people around who, who are running nodes, which validate the blocks. Yeah. yeah. And validator nodes, uh, in proof of stake networks, yeah. they just stake a bunch of the token and then they are responsible for ensuring that these yeah. blocks get validated. And if you have enough of these validator nodes, then you can have secure. So that's proof of stake. Proof of work, they're just burning, cranking through a bunch of energy to yeah. solve these, these mathematical puzzles. And like, because, that's like Bitcoin, right? That's right. And, and yeah. because the world has finite amount of energy per unit yeah. time, yeah. that actually, the, the combination of the math and the energy actually secures the Bitcoin network or, you know, huh. Ethereum before they go proof of stake, et cetera, et cetera. Crazy. So that's that's that world. Yeah. But in in the world of how we can produce data sets mm-hmm. that go on chain, layer one, layer two. Layer one is kind of the more, is going to be the more slower. Layer two may have a bunch of transactions that then eventually can go on to layer one. Mm-hmm. In 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 the world in your world with regard mm-hmm. to essentially commodity supply chain, right? If I were to mm-hmm. sort of sum it up. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, how do you see, how, how do you see the, the potential for a farmer's um, uh, revealing to the blockchain mm-hmm. what, what commodities they have available, what, what ingredients that they're very mm-hmm. interested in selling yeah. Uh, with, without revealing too much. Well, I, I guess, I guess viewing it from the farmer's sense, why do they, yeah. care? why don't they, why do they? I don't care? think, I don't think the farmers care. Yeah. That's my hypothesis is huh. that it's not the farmers that care. It's the aggregators in the middle. It's all the distribution layers, Okay. you know, well, and the value added players. And so that's where I feel like blockchain could help us skip around that or yes you know or you could even create like you know say snacktivist become has a, a like kind of a tech side of it and we are a node and we're like hey you know like we help manage well it, you don't manage it because it's blockchain it's not it's centralized but like you know you can say hey we've we've vetted all these suppliers and they're compliant and they're using the blockchain so they are validated they are giving us reliable data and um, and I think from a perspective of eliminating greenwashing, that's a big deal too, because again, big companies are going to want to say, "Oh yeah, our farmers did X Y Z," even though they're not necessarily always wanting to say who the farmers were. So you can't actually go and check out their farming practices to validate that it is indeed what they say it is. You know what I mean? And so, especially if you have these entities trying to go after, you know, markets that are based on the authenticity of the way that it's being farmed. Like it's, it's like the system doesn't allow that to be authentic. It's like prohibitive. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, it comes back to this meta theme of scaling trust, which is yeah. the big web three thing, because you don't, you, there may be a shady farmer out there trying to sell you <laughs> things that are or, or scamming you or whatever, 
yeah. In the, in the world of blockchains, we call them oracles. They're essentially sources of reliable information that feed that information to the blockchain so that if we do smart contracts or yeah. other programmatic ways to move things around and scale trust, mm -hmm. that we at least have trust in these oracles that are going to provide accurate information. Right. So in a Rolodex and Bourbon world, there are people who you trust because mm -hmm. you keep them face to face to to verify the authenticity yeah. of the different ingredients out there right handshake yeah it's handshake that you're going to you are going to look after our best interests because i trust you and we have a relationship or you have a track record of being really authentic and giving good quality services and products so then it begs the question why blockchain why, 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 if, yeah. if you had centralized sources that were trustworthy, is, is that maybe the problem? Uh, mm -hmm. Then we may not need to have the scale trust. Have you th thought more about that? That's, that's always the, the, the critical question in this world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and honestly, with that, it's like um, because so many of those relationships are hard to develop and take a long time. And that's a, that's a good thing. You wouldn't want that to ever be cheap. But you think about, smaller companies that are trying to innovate and trying to break into larger companies, well, the larger companies kind of have a stranglehold on all the relationships. And then you have that kind of competitive thing of like, you know, where it's like, oh, well, we don't want to work with you because you're a little one and you're potentially a competitor with this bigger guy. And then there's kind of this, um, it's almost like you're you're blocked out of an, an, an entire industry. Does that make sense? Um, and that's really mostly like from a kind of commodity standpoint. When we're, you're dealing with what we're dealing with, which is like totally innovative economies in ag right now, where we have more farmers than we have, than we have suppliers, or sorry, we have more farmers transitioning in some areas than we have brands buying. But what we don't have is that connection piece in the middle. Because like we talked about those distributors that are highly centralized and very big in institutions and they've operated in a certain way for a long time. So they're not very, they don't pivot really quickly. Um, you know, could blockchain allow us to create new relationships that would then turn into actual like bourbon and Rolodex relationships because you could find people that are doing something like somehow there could be an exploratory and I don't know blockchain enough to, to know if it works in reverse like that. I feel like everything we hear about the blockchain, it's like kind of unidirectional. Um, but I don't know what the exploratory component is on like web three, because I know on web two, you can go Google things. <laughs> Right. But then you, you're only going to get what Google wants you to see, you know, <laughs> so on web three, if you're looking for, I want somebody, I want a farmer who's planted this certain type of variety of millet. And if they mined that data into the chain and you ask the chain, Hey, does somebody in Kansas plant this kind of millet this year? Yes or no. Like, is there a way that you could somehow find them and, and, and do business with them? That makes yeah, sense. Because that, yeah, because in a web two way, if somebody created that that kind of marketplace, and I'm sure there are probably tons of them all around the world, um, you you ultimately have to trust the founders and the technicians yeah. of those, and which are easily hackable, right? It, we're, we're we're playing out a microcosm in the ag industry, which plays out in every single other industry. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it does. It's yeah. like it this this same exact problem 
applies to like car parts, yeah. you know what I mean? Or like anything. So, you know, when I think about it on a more macro scale level, that's where I get really excited and interested about blockchain and Web3 and how it could revolutionize industries by somehow allowing us to still leverage the beautiful side of relationships, but to overcome when they're prohibitive or competitive or not allowing business to flourish and have equal opportunity, right? Yeah, because on, on a fundamental level, uh, you can imagine all, uh, take, take the big telecoms, take the big social networks, um, take the big e-commerce and uh, marketplaces, and just imagine all of those services now being available on chain, where there's this, de- there's these decentralized protocols. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, nobody can change it. You're, you're trusting basically math and proof of work, mm-hmm. uh, or, or math and energy, to make sure that your data is secure. Mm-hmm. And in that world, the 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 process by which we can meet new humans, where we can mm-hmm. establish new trust networks. Because the, right. the, the bourbon and Rolodex is all about just trust networks, right? If we put that on where math and, and energy or math and, and, and proof of work or proof of stake can make that reliable, then right. we might be able to have transparent exposure into at least, hey, this farmer in this part of the world has these buyers, yeah. has these relationships. You may not know what they are, and yeah. it's possible it all could be a scam. So it's sort of, but you may you may be at least be able to, in the same way that you do in the real world, you may be able to identify something, see if you have any connections into that farmer mm-hmm. and, and, and purchase, you know, buyer beware. <laughs> but, right. but at least make the right. decision yourself without yeah. worrying that that information is being tampered with, being centralized, censored, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And that's... That is where that is where collectively the Web3 community is right. headed. And, you know, for me, when I think about just supply chain in its basic form, I need a high quality millet flour that is certified gluten free. So it's gone through a certified gluten free mill. Um, you know, that's just one use case. But if we're like, oh, hey, you know, we're trying to develop a product that can have a you know, an actual carbon data associated with it, where it's like, okay, the farms that were in, that were growing these crops sequestered this much carbon in the 2021 growth season. You have to have something like blockchain, I would think, to even be able to start um, compiling that data. You know, it, like, because it would have to be a collective. I mean, you, you'd have to have an enormous farm if you wanted to be tracking that stuff like single farmer by single farmer. And my guess is that 98% of farmers are not going to have the bandwidth, the interest, or the mm. the, the concept to want to go that direction. But if they were selling into a platform that had like a blockchain kind of data capture and say it's associated with a node, and then you can say, okay, well, within our network, based on the data that our farmers put in, we sent them kits, and they're doing their measurements. Usually, most farmers are doing measurements of their soil. They're pretty soil-savvy people, whether they're doing conventional farming or not, or regenerative or organic or whatever they're doing. You can start like logging that data, and then it can't be tampered with. And if you were to be going after measurement of carbon sequestration, either for marketing purposes or for some sort of financial incentivization, you would have to make sure that it's like reliable data. Mm-hmm. There's so much room for greenwashing here. It's very scary. Hmm. 
So you've used that term a few times. I don't know if all every all the listeners or or, or viewers are, are familiar with it. Can you describe what is greenwashing? Yeah. So greenwashing happens when like some sort of entity, whether it be a business, a nonprofit, a religious institution, even like any any group, um, mm-hmm. would say, "Oh, you know, we're we're doing this," and say they make a claim having to do with how green they are. So either like recycling impact or carbon or energy or even like diversity inclusion that even, and it's not greenwashing, but that also happens too, where people, you know, companies are all like, you know, we're doing X, Y, Z, but if you really started scrubbing the books, Mm. there would be a lot of questions as to how they're quantifying that. That's why there's the, that's why there's a B Corp certification. And like the point of the B certification is to try to, really scrutinize your data and make sure that you're not mm. greenwashing or, um, you know, it's like brain brainwashing, but greenwashing. Um, and so, um, it's a phenomenon that's out there and it's large companies are often under a lot of scrutiny for it because you'll have Clorox be like, Oh, and I'm just, I'm making this up cause I haven't seen Clorox make a claim like this recently, but like if Clorox was like, Oh yeah, we're carbon neutral. And you're like, wait, like how, what, you know, like, and don't quote me on that because they didn't say that, but there would be a lot of people that would be hesitant and think that might be greenwashing, right? And like, how did you guys get to that where you can tell the public and you can use it as a marketing ploy that, oh, you're carbon neutral or whatever. Sure. So a lot of the companies out there and forget about Clorox because I was just picking on them because they're a huge company and they own tons of different industries, sure. but even a smaller, a smaller company and they're like, oh, we're carbon neutral. And I think that's awesome. I love it when companies are trying to go carbon neutral or waste free, but you have to just really be careful when you're using that as your marketing ploy. And we run into this all the time because we're like excited about regenerative agriculture, but we don't have a regenerative supply chain yet. We're building it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do you walk that line? You're educating people you're trying to be authentic about where you are in the process, but, um, you know, where are your data sets? What are you measuring? And, um, that's where I think, you know, something like blockchain could be really helpful Mm. if people knew how to do it. Like I couldn't put something in the blockchain if I tried, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) So then, oh yeah. So we can talk about that a little bit later, but I just, so, okay. So then moving to fast forward 10, 15 years, we have this amazing system that works exactly how you want it to work. How does your life as an entrepreneur, a CPG company, get better? Like, what? Are, tell, tell me story, example stories, yeah. hypothetical stories of I've how. I've got a really good use case of if it could work like this, it would be amazing. If like, I would say, okay, cool. I just, I am doing all of my purchasing for my supply chain within this platform. And so when I exchange either tokens or cash money or however we're exchanging money, it's logging that transaction and that I can then have my own fingerprint of what our transaction history is that could print to me, you know, reports, essentially, I would want reporting out of it, which I know that's tricky because it's, you know, of the privacy, but if you could authenticate, like if certain players in the platform said, okay, we've got all this data, some of it is going to be available for public and some of it's going to be private and they could, they could identify what's public and what's private that I could say, cool, you know, today I want to print a report of everything having to do with our tough waffle mix. And it would say, okay, in 2021, 
you know, here's where all of your teff came from. Here's where all of your millet came from, you know, and it would all be in one generatable authentic, like real report without having a two full-time people sitting in an office, manually logging all this stuff just to have it be out of date in a month. Mm. So the fact that this would be continuously updated would be huge because at any given time, if you were to pull your records from the, you know, things that are vetted as being publicly shareable, you could say, okay, cool. I need to submit my certifications to this new distributor. And all of a sudden you just download a, a, a bunch of files or share it with your distributor digitally. And it would be everything up to date. Like all the certifications would be up to date. All the insurance would be up to date mm. instead of going, Oh, great. Now I need to call 20 people and get their updated insurance information, you know? And so to me, there's a massive efficiency incentive there as a business owner, because I would be willing to bet millions of dollars a year are spent just on people sitting in, de- in front of their desk, just manually logging all this data at a high error rate. Mm-hmm. The error rate is a problem. If mm-hmm. you're doing a recall, one error is a problem, yes. you know? So um, to me, to have that live, continuously updated data source that could be somehow leveraged for, you know, timely and um, very accurate reporting would be a huge deal. And I know other people are working on that part of it. All right. So then if this exists in some point, hopefully in the near future, how does this benefit the broader world community? Like how, how does this benefit consumers mm-hmm. what does it enable for them? I, I really think if we could get this working really well um, to where there is that reportable side of it, um, and granted, the futures market and the stock traders of the world could have a heyday with this potentially, <laughs> which could be a problem. Right. But, um, you know, you you think about um, scarcity and supply chain vulnerability and you look around the world and you're like, OK, what's being planted? What is our crop damage looking like? Um, you know, are we going to have scarcity? Like right now, we're having this crazy, crazy heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. It's damaging lots of crops. Um, granted a lot of them are trees and stuff that you'd need years to plant. So you can't really up your production there, but say for instance, we had an impact like in California right now, we know the, the rice harvest is down this year, um, because of drought in California Mm. Uh, in the Southern hemisphere. Like those people know that because of their relationships and their news and whatnot, but it would be kind of cool to have more quantitative forecasting where we could say, uh Oh, okay. Southern hemisphere can you guys plant to help us fill that gap so we don't have global shortages and certain ingredients, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that actually could be a potential real world. I'm not going to solve that problem, but I think somebody might, um, who's really into like, you know, like SAP, Ariba and all these huge ERP programming people that they live and breathe this stuff every day. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there could be tremendous impact there. So, mm hmm. I like it. Well, that's exciting. That's a, and I and I know that the 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 amount of money and time and expertise that is going into developing these protocols, yeah, and developing the usability of them so that it will become easy to use, relatively easy mm-hmm. to use, mm-hmm. and all of the politics and social aspects of it, right? Yeah. Blockchains are fascinating because you have to combine the sociology, the game theories with the mathematics, yeah, with the all the incentives and 
and and the economics. And so all of these multifacets come together when you're talking about scaling trust. Mm-hmm. And that it makes it extremely difficult, but also extremely fascinating. Yeah. World. It's like the wild west, really, you yeah. know, when it in informatics. And one of the thing I things I'm constantly kind of troubled about, and again, this is from me operating from the perspective of just knowing enough to be dangerous. Like I'm like the person who's diagnosing themselves after reading, you know, about their health on Google. Um, you know, it's like not trained. Um, you know, but I look at, you know, just kind of the, the energy intensivity in like Bitcoin, for instance, and anytime you're doing like the work, like what is it? The perceived work or the one that's proof of work where you're literally like draining whole GMP's energy supplies in foreign countries like Kazakhstan to like mine for Bitcoin. That's like, oh my gosh, like I would, it scares me about blockchain in general because our, we don't want to have our whole world dependent on something that's so energy intensive, right? Because that's a little bit of a vulnerability too. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that's where I'm like, I get confused about blockchain as a technology and looking at it separately from like where it exists in the cryptocurrency world. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of proof of stake and the movement to it. And I think um, a lot of the future use cases um, that are going to enable the type of applications that we're talking about are going to be built on proof of stake chains that don't require a massive amount of energy. But uh-huh. to defend a bit of the argument of energy usage, there you can argue that the it's always going to be the cheapest form of energy that are going to be used to mine bitcoin or yeah to, or or secure these other proof of work chains that are out there and when and when your economic incentives are to always find the cheapest electricity where is the cheapest electricity it's in places where they have an excess yeah, like places in China they overdid their hydro, and so they're dumping energy all the time. Wow! And even here in the Pacific Northwest, they're they're, yeah. they're you know if you if uh, you know I've I've listened to some pretty interesting data scientists and others that talk about the duck curve in power that mm. day when people are at work and such or when when it's hot out, um, you know, average throughout the year, energy consumption goes down. But then when everybody gets gets home. Then all of a sudden the, the the demand on the on the grid gets higher. And so mm-hmm. where's all that energy going in the middle of the day or right. in the the night when people aren't using it? Well, yeah. it ends up just getting wasted. So crazy to think. So yeah. you can make an argument that if you know it's not, obviously it's it, the proof of work world isn't this perfect, but but the proof of work people do make an interesting point that there is actually just tons of excess energy out there being wasted. Why mm-hmm. not put that to use to securing something like digital gold? Yeah. So there's a there there. It's it's a way more nuanced nuanced argument. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So you could see how on one end of the extreme, it's a bunch of people just saying, "Hey, this is this is causing this is wasting all this energy all around the world," and yeah. the other end, it said, "Hey, we're only using the excess energy that would have been wasted anyway." Oh uh, yeah. Uh, Interesting. That like I've never thought about it from that perspective. So yeah. That's, that's interesting. Might as well capture it and put it into something. That's right. Yeah. Mm, okay. Hmm. Batteries are too expensive and 
they're <laughs> a problem too. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to like overly defend the proof of work because yeah. I'm a fan of the proof to stake. It's just, I think, helpful for people to understand a little bit yeah. more of the nuance of some of these these conversations yeah. that get, get lost in headlines. Well, yeah, they do. And, and I've had a lot of trouble with that in my own like exploration, trying to really wrap my head around that and read that. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, am I getting excited about a technology that's potentially like a dead end because it's mm. so energy intensive that it can never really like, you know, proliferate to being, you know, common, right? And so that kind of puts it into a different perspective. Like what would happen to the blockchain without electricity? Like, I don't even want to think about the grids going down in general, but, you know, there is like also vulnerability and like how entrenched in all of these digital systems, all of our systems are right. But that's a whole nother conversation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this is amazing. All right. So then I'd say the last set of questions then are around your projects that you're, you said you had this huge deck. What are you using that huge deck for? What are you trying to accomplish? And then I'd love to revisit the, the yeah. project that you're doing with it. It's a pretty simple deck. I just did a lot of research into it. This was in 2016. Ah. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> you want to create a connected marketplace for agriculture, specialty agricultural commod commodities using blockchain? They were like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, 2016, this was definitely yeah. falling on deaf ears. Yeah. And I actually got accepted into a business accelerator on this concept. And halfway through it, they were like, it's too abstract. They're mm -hmm. like, no one's going to understand this. They're like, don't you want a food company? Why don't you just focus on your food company? You know, get back <laughs> in the kitchen, <laughs> you know? And so I feel like I've just been hanging on to it this whole time and watching the development of these technologies that are making it more realistic right? Like now compared to 2016, 2017, I mean, blockchain's becoming more of a household name. People understand it um, a lot more, especially the users of the platforms. So, um, you know, I, I'd be happy to share the deck with you. And it literally is just very much use case scenario of finding specialty growers and connecting the chain of everybody who would need to be involved. And this is something I didn't talk about, but it's a very important component. When you look at the transaction and the movements from agricultural ingredients until they get to your plate, it's it even in the most it, the best case scenario where you're trying to shorten it as much as you can, you still have the product get harvested. If it's a grain, it has to be cleaned. It then has to be processed in some way, either milled or packaged or something. Those are usually done in separate facilities. So if you, have an, you have an ingredient that's starting at a certain geographical location, and it's usually passed through five to 10 geographical locations before it actually reaches you. Even in a very, you know, like, hmm. like farmer's market situation, it still has to go to a cleaner. It, you know, even if you're buying whole like unground wheat berries, say for instance, it's unless they're doing it all on their farm, which is not the norm because most farmers don't want to be vertically integrated. It's a lot of work and very expensive. Um, you know, there's this movement of the product and I, you know, I've always had this hope that, you know, through some sort of digital enablement of data exchange, that's a collective data exchange, like the ledger community ledger that you could then 
have better unification of the value added players. Like, you know, there are so many farmers growing amazing crops right now. And the reason we're not buying them as consumers is because they lack access to value added players. They lack access to the appropriate you know, cleaners and millers and processors along the way. And if we could somehow, you know, make people able to find each other and to create these webs and connections, um, it would actually really ramp up that whole industry to become more independent and more sovereign and decentralized because it's the fact that that doesn't exist is why farmers just go, I'm just going to sell this into the commodity market. So they've grown this beautiful regenerative specialty crop and it just gets dumped and blended with everything else because Mm. they lack the access to that whole infrastructure. Mm. And that's what my pitch was presenting is that we Mm. could solve that. Yeah. Mm. It's a whole nother thing. Keep it alive. The the it's it's coming. The 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 time when when that kind of venture uh, can can flourish is 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 coming sooner than you think. <laughs> yes, it sure is. And I mean, I I honestly, even just the fact that now these conversations are happening and people aren't like the reaction compared to 2016 when I first started talking about this, like if I talked to, to tech guys, like we have this awesome community here in Coeur d'Alene called the Innovation Collective. It's a tech hub. They were all over it. They're like, oh my gosh, blockchain enablement of like supply chains. Like how cool is that? But then once you take it outside to like other industries, especially food, they were like, oh my gosh, you're like witchcraft style. Like that's like two out there where now I see now that the conversation's happening. Yeah. So especially if there's a financial incentive and at the end of the day, you know, we have to financially incentivize. And we talked about this last time. This is why I think for-profit entities are the going to be the change makers in food mm. is because, you know, you start, you know, you've got bottom up pressure from consumers who want to know more. They want to be more involved. They want it to be healthier and better for the planet. And that momentum pushes through the system and ultimately motivates farmers and all the value added state players in the middle to up their game and do more, you know, high quality methods of farming because they, a lot of them want to, because they're good people and they want to steward the earth. But ultimately there's a consumer pressure to where they're like, oh, cool. You know, I could get a better price for this. It's a more profitable for us. It, there's incentive to change. Mm. And that again could be traced and tracked in like a, a community-based ledger system like blockchain. All right. Well, this has been endless. <laughs> yep. I'm going to send this to all my Web3 friends and say, yeah. hey, we we wax poetic on some Web3 product ideas in, in supply yeah. chain and ag. Uh, what's what can we do about it? So this is this is yeah. going to be that episode that will hopefully inspire yeah, a new generation of Web three product people and entrepreneurs to uh, to work with you and snack. That would be awesome. Yeah, because I yeah I have a feeling you know for one you always know when you're dabbling in something that you're not an expert at at all that you know I'm sure people are gonna the web guys are gonna be like hey okay you're totally thinking about it wrong think yeah. about it like this and I'm actually hoping for that because I think that's yeah. when like the the like pieces of the puzzle will come together in my head to where you know, as we move forward and as we grow our company and we grow our supply chain network and we grow the impact that we're making on our farmers and the nutrition, nutrient density of the foods and et cetera, if you can somehow get somebody who's 
wildly nerdy and, and excited about this stuff and understands how to put that into a, a technological backbone, I think amazing things could happen. So okay. they can educate me about That's it. That's right. So this is a call to action to you web yes. product people out there and entrepreneurs. Let's 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 have a conversation. I would love to. Yeah. Um, you guys know where to find me. <laughs> so yeah. All right. So snacktivistfoods.com. Uh I we can find you on LinkedIn. I'll put the the links yeah. in the show notes. Anything else you want to you want to say to the to the audience in closing? No. Um, I think we've covered a lot of great stuff yeah. and Again, I just hope that I'm, you know, by by placing a really oddball industry in the middle of the tech revolution, I just hope that it it is inspiring to people who are spending their time and um and their brain capacity like developing these novel systems that, you know, we we base it on some cool use cases like food security and global food security and how yeah. to like, you know, save the world through food. Yes. <laughs> All about Good that. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thanks. It's been fun. Well, we always have so much fun when we talk, so yes. we could probably have a series on all kinds of oddball we, topics. Yes. Let's, let's I'm happy see. to get back to the soil science and microbiomes piece anytime as well. And the physiology and, you know, how, you know, we, that's like a whole nother episode, yeah. on the, the, the pathophysiology of obesity and food and all that cool stuff. So. What well, sounds like a, a part three is in our future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Glucometers, all of that cool all stuff. All right. <laughs> take yes. care, everybody. All right. Have a care. wonderful day and stay cool. <laughs> Literally. Bye. Later. All right. A couple quick things before you go. Number one, I have a general newsletter where I write about technology and startups and health science and teaching people to code. And I write about a variety of different subjects that we talk about on this show. So if you go to wclittle.com, there you'll be able to subscribe. And you'll also be able to subscribe to particular topics. If you're just interested in one or a few of them, you'll be notified right when I publish new content in those areas. Number two, my partners and I at Proto Ventures have a portfolio company called Startup Rocket. If you go to startuprocket.com, there you'll be able to receive coaching guides and customize an operations framework for you and your team and your advisors to be on the same page in terms of what is the appropriate next step for you and your entrepreneurial journey. And finally, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review anywhere that you have listened to this podcast or watched this podcast, it'd be super helpful to help those who might be interested in consuming this content as well. Thank you.